All right, guys, welcome back to the second hour of our podcast this month with our very special guest. Uh, this guy is a legend in the scene. Uh, he was someone that Adam and I used to actually listen to a lot uh, through his compilation CDs. We used to go and see him when he was DJing. Uh, Mr. Mark Dynamics, how are you? I'm good, Tim. How are you both, Adam and Tim? Good, man. We Thank you so good much good. for coming on the show. Um, we understand you've got a lot going on, even though you're in lockdown. Um, but uh, to get you on the show is, is a real privilege, mate. Very, very stoked. Oh, it's a pleasure, pleasure to be here. Awesome, mate. Well, let's uh, get into some questions and get our listeners uh, knowing a little bit about you. I want to start with a with an easy one. Um, I was reading on Wikipedia, which obviously can be changed here and there and stuff, but I read that you started DJing at 14. I want to know how many years have you been DJing for in total now? Yeah, I mean, the first time I started, the first time I played to anyone would have been around 1989. Um, so that was more your high school parties, you know, backyard parties. And then I got really interested in um, radio and I yep. created a radio station at school. So this, this is back at, at Mitchell High School. And uh, we had music there from recess and lunch. Uh, and uh, I was the station manager, I hosted, and then we had other people as well. So from there, I went to 2RDJ in 1990, and um, that was really where I got my start in radio and, and DJing. So, I mean, if you count it from 89, I mean, what are we in now, 2020? So uh, that's 31 years. Wow. Um, wow. In, front of, in front of an actual proper, you know, club crowd, or rave crowd, I would say, yeah, 92 or 91, 92 is when I started getting those kind of gigs. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. up until then, it was backyard parties and a, lo a lot of radio. I got involved in radio really early on. And I'm glad I did because it gave me gave me the confidence and the start really to get involved in the scene and meet a lot of people. Like, you know, you guys today, you're meeting, meeting me on radio for the first time. Um, you know, this is what was happening with me back in 1990. I'd have... Uh, DJs such as Paul Holden or, you know, uh, I interviewed The Beloved, I interviewed The Prodigy when they were fledgling, uh, Laurent Garnier, uh, Sven Vath, people like that. Um, they were coming into the radio show because there were only a limited amount of radio shows back in the day on community radio. And community radio is where you'd hear all the, all the fresh stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was a really exciting time and, and, you know, going from radio into raves and then clubs later on, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Yeah, def definitely. We're going to touch on a lot of that um, in deep into the uh, the interview. Um, now, over over the time when you first actually started getting into playing, uh, whether it be backyards or anything else like that, um, was there someone or something that actually inspired you to start DJing from such a young age? Well, I mean, on a more general level, my father, because he was a jazz guitarist uh, in the 50s and 60s, and he used to perform on uh, big ships like the Queen Mary and the QE2 that would travel between uh, England and America. So although the music was completely different, I mean, he liked jazz music and Dixieland and things like that. Obviously, I like dance music and pop music, UK pop, electronic pop. And we used to clash all the time I and mean, we never saw eye to eye at all. But the, the general idea of going out and performing and, uh, and also writing music as well back at home, I guess that kind of stemmed from from him. It was a musical house, you mm -hmm. know. Um, so I guess that would be my first influence. Um, but then I remember just as my parents were about to leave England, so this is 1987, 
I would have been in the equivalent of year six here in, in Australia. Um, I remember we went out to a, a pub um, uh, and one of those country pubs and someone was playing records. Now, I was already buying vinyl, 12-inch vinyl, because I was well into music. I loved, uh, I loved you know, Tears for Fears and Depeche Mode and Pet Shop Boys and, and New yeah. Order and all that. So I was already buying those 12-inch versions on vinyl in the UK. Um, but then I saw this guy in the pub DJing on two record players and I, I had never seen it before. And he was actually mixing them in in time. It was pretty rudimentary, but um, I remember watching that and, and looking at my mom and going, how the hell is he doing that? And they didn't understand it. They didn't know what was going on. Um, so that was obviously the first time I saw someone DJ with two turntables. So I don't know who that guy was, but uh, he was certainly influenced. And then I've, I've got one more. There was actually a community radio station called 2GLF. Uh, I think it's still there in New South Wales, um, a Gosford radio station. And where I was located in 1988, when we first came out to Australia, um, I could just pick up this radio station on the FM band in, in mono, crackly. There was this uh, show on a Sunday night um, by a DJ, I think his name was Ian Botham. Um, uh, and he used to play uh, dance music, electronic hip house, or hip house, and Chicago House and Acid House on this station for two hours every Sunday night. So I'd be there with a cassette player, taping everything, you know, doing live edits, getting his voice out of it so I could listen back to it later. Wow. Um, and um, that got me involved in Acid House music. And then I found this, this record store called Disco City in Parramatta. Um, and they used to have all of this like crazy Acid House music from the UK, which was completely fresh at the time. Uh, so that was again another massive influence and then moving into radio to RDJ and then into clubs and, and raves as well. That's it's literally, that was the pathway um, into it really, that, that sort of stuff, yeah. That's so cool, that's so cool. Now, most young Australians have either owned a Ministry of Sound album or they've attended a Ministry of Sound event. Uh, I was curious, this was a question that I threw into the mix. Um, I really wanted to know how you actually became basically sort of the head of Ministry of Sound Australia for Sony Music. I mean, how, how did that eventuate? Obviously, you're playing gigs and, you know, you're doing raves and clubs. What was the turning point or what was the moment where that got offered to you? Well, Ministry of Sound, uh, as a DJ and a mixer, got offered to me when they first opened up the Australian branch of the of the label. Obviously, it's a UK label. Yeah. So that was two, that was the year two thousand when that happened, uh, and from that period, um, I was involved really heavily in not just the mixing, engineering, and promotional and marketing uh, aspect of the business, but um, you know also the creative direction uh, and that continued all the way through to about 2011 when I think my final one for the original Ministry of Sound in Australia uh, was the annual 10 years classics mm -hmm. album um, yes, so all the way through that period I, I did every annual except for 2008 and 2009 um, and um, then there were session CDs there were the chill out session CDs um, there was mixtape and discotheque uh, CDs. So that, and they all did, did a dig, different genre of music. You see, back in back in this day, in early 2000s, it was acceptable for a DJ to be kind of across a lot of different genres. That's mm -hmm. kind of looked down upon a little bit now. It is kind of difficult to make yourself 
you know, to get anywhere when you when you cover so many things. It's people have that attitude of, oh, if you can if you play so many different styles, you can't be that good at anything, which yeah. is actually completely wrong. It, it, you know, if you are that good, if you are good at playing a load of different styles, it means that you know you have music in your blood and you can pick it up at any BPM. And if you know your records, you understand it. So. Um, that I, I was doing that back in those days. I was playing a bit of rave, I was playing house, I was playing techno, trance, and chill out stuff. So it led myself to being able to do all of those different CDs from a mixing point of view. Now, the um, the Sony Music thing happened when Sony Music UK bought the label um, from Ministry of Sounds UK. So when, when that happened, this was 2006, this happened, 2017, sorry, 2017 this happened. So when this happened, um, Ministry of Sound Australia lost the rights to produce the CDs here in Australia. And remember, we had our own range of CDs going, which were completely different to the UK Ministry range of CDs. Yeah. Um, so uh, they lost that. Sony were looking for someone to take take hold of the business that knew about Ministry of Sound, because at that stage, there wasn't anyone working at Sony that really knew the dance industry, especially in, in Australia, that, that you know, in, in and out. Um, they, they used to have One Love, but that had kind of been taken away and gone independent. So um, anyway, they, they headhunted me. They gave me a call and they said, Mark, would you like to be involved in the label? And I was actually in two minds about doing it because you know, I, I had I had a, quite a, a strong allegiance with the old Ministry of Sound. It was a, a hostile takeover to some, in some respect, by Sony UK um, to to take over the label. Um, and I wasn't sure how I would feel about that, and, and whether the label still had much longevity left in it. So um, it was it was definitely something I, I thought over. But on the same token, I thought, well, if I have total control over it then I can take it in whatever direction I think that will work in Australia. It's Hopefully it won't be dictated by the label above. And to be honest, it wasn't. Uh, the time I spent there as head of ministry, it wasn't dictated too much to me by Sony. They kind of left me to my own uh, business, my own devices to get on with the job. So mm -hmm. um, that's pretty much how it happened. So I was, I was head of the label for I don't know, two, two and a half, something like that, years. And um, uh, we did all together... 13 or 14 CDs um, and also had the online stuff going as well um, and they were all number one on the compilation charts as they came out I mean there was the stage there um, where I think we had number one two and three for the three different compilations that for the last three months I mean it's pretty unheard of for yeah. a label to sort of get that and that was that was really exciting and also it gave me the scope to be able to do one of my own compilations again with uh, with Robbie Lowe and also DJ KLP from Triple J. So we did the sessions rebirth this CD, which was totally you know taking taking the old sessions but you know modernising it with with a fresh look um, and also uh, letting the DJs just run wild with it. You know with these, I thought let's do it a different way. Let's let the DJs have complete control over um, what happens on these CDs. So Robbie did his disc, I did mine. KLP did hers. Um, and, um, you know, uh, it was a great compilation and, it, you know, the sales of CDs just aren't there anymore. You know, mm. the, the format has moved completely to digital, well, not completely, but 90% to digital. And um, right at the end of my tenure there at Sony, Ministry of Sound UK decided that they were going to spend a huge amount of money uh, promoting the uh, Ministry of Sound UK playlists. 
um, in Australia, and we, we saw big billboards all over all over the place in Sydney and Melbourne. And unfortunately, by doing that, they cannibalised the CD part of the business. Um, so that was kind of you know the the nail in the coffin for CDs from Ministry of Sound. And when when I left there in uh, February 2019, they haven't done another Ministry of Sound CD since. So I'd say that that's it for that uh, arm of the business. Um, it is still online, but I don't think we'll be seeing any more uh, Ministry of Sound CDs. They're quite expensive to produce, you see, because uh, you know you've got a lot of different tracks on there. All of those artists need to be paid with their commission, their royalties. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of money to go out from each CD. The artwork is expensive because it's a triple pack, digi pack. The digi packs are more expensive than the um, than the plastic cases. Wow. And of course, because we were relaunching the label, I was like, okay, we need embossing on the CD. We need metallic <laughs> leaf, you know, and we kind of went to town on the first couple and it is expensive. So, and then, you know, the marketing. So it is, it's not something that like, like an artist album, like myself, I could just put it together in my studio in my lockdown time in Melbourne, um, compile it together here, master it rather cheaply send it to the label and just put it out there digitally it doesn't cost a lot of money mm. but for a compilation where you're taking other people's work remixing it mixing it for a compilation used to that that is an expensive process so anyway it's it's a time and place thing and uh, it had a good run that format and um that's where it is <laughs> oh, wow. it's not, yeah, that's, that's that's a lot that's i mean you yeah. It's, it's understandable with the with how much it would cost, you know, the royalties and everything else as well. But there is one thing that I want to touch on. So for many years, like a lot of people, we would have bought either the sessions compilations or the annual compilations. I'm sure that if I was to go back through, I've got several CDs of Ministry of Sound. Um, the 2007 annual was probably my personal favourite because that was when I was really starting to get into the house and electro scene. But those compilations were done with John Course. So the, what I want to know is how did the actual uh, collaboration with John Course come about? Well, it's really nice you say that, Adam. Thanks for that. Um, you know, it's uh, it was always a, a dual process, you know, getting one of these compilations together. They would come up with the artwork at the label. Um, they would give myself or the other DJ on the other disc a certain amount of tracks that they needed to have on there because uh, they had certain label deals with people like Subliminal in, in America or uh, Defected in the UK. And a certain amount of those tr tracks from those labels would need to appear on the CD. On top of that, John would submit his favourites of the time that he was thrashing in the clubs, and so would I. And obviously I would stick more in the harder house or trance progressive area at that time. Um, and he would stick more to the funky house and vocal pop house. So uh, we had our own flavors. We worked very well together because we were so different musically and it gave people variety. In saying that, it worked really well with, with the DJs before John came on board. So I was there from the start and then we had Sean Quinn do a, a CD with me. Uh, there was another couple I think I did with GT, uh, one with Declan. Uh, these, these are really early club nations. Um, and, and, you know, everyone's flavour is expressed on those discs. 
I actually started doing a couple of different compilations with them, uh, mixed mixtape and discotheque, which were much, much more into what I was playing at the time. So that was around 2007, 2008. And both of those you can still get on Discord secondhand copies. So if anyone wants to hunt them out, they're not on Spotify or, or <laughs> iTunes or anything <laughs> like that. So, um, but they're, they're, they're absolutely um, where my head was at at the time. I was living in Berlin in 2008. I was surrounded by all this amazing techno and minimal minimal techno and um, uh, house. And uh, I wanted to, when I came back to Australia after doing that jaunt over there, um, I really wanted to um, make a CD of this sort of stuff. So that was the why Mixtape came about. And then Discotheque was an extension of it the year following. But yeah, I really love those two CDs. I mean, that they... Mixing wise and track selection, I think they were two of the best that I did on Ministry um, in the in the tougher end of the spectrum. Mm. I also yeah. really like Chill Out Sessions Five. Uh, for some reason, just the tracks on that album really came together. And another one I did called Late Night Sessions, which was before that. That was the first Chill Out one I did on Ministry. Um, and it, it wasn't a, such a popular series as Chill Out Sessions. I think because we went a lot deeper with it and it was, you know, really underground stuff on that CD. So um, I really love that one, Late Night Sessions. But you say your favourite's uh, <laughs> annual 2007, is that right? 2000, yeah, 2007. Absolutely loved it. Got a major thrashing. I think you never get it now because everything's digital, but I think I thrashed it so hard that the CD was actually starting to acquire scratches on it. So. Yeah. You'd, yeah, yeah. yeah, you'd never, you'd never understand. People listening to this that are in the younger crowd, and I make myself sound oh, like what's you know scratches on a CD? What do you mean by that? But yeah, there was scratches. Well, no on one the feels CD. older. Than, no one feels older than me, mate. I've just told you that I DJed for thirty-one years. Unless <laughs> 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 well, I was DJing when I was two years old, um, you can work out how old I am. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, two thousand seven annual was a good one. I mean, it was definitely a, the, of the time and place. We captured that electro sound that was just mm. excuse me, that was just emerging uh, emerging here in in Australia, especially Sydney, um, on that disc. Uh, it's got some great Australian content on that one as well. I remember like lot we we really pushed the Australian stuff, uh, and it was just a little bit before you know all of those uh, Australian acts started becoming huge here, like Penal and Cut Copy and yeah, yeah. etc. So. Um, yeah, a good disc. Not one of my favourites. I, I actually, um, I feel like that electro sound was one of the reasons why I, I needed to not do the, the annuals anymore. Um, not because it's a bad genre. It has its place and it did really well for so many years. I mean, you know, from 2007 to 2013, 14, Electro House was massive. Uh, and then it kind of went went uh, uh, softer again with, with more Deep House. But um, I, I kind of, it wasn't the 2007 electro tracks were the problem. It's just that the, the genre went on for so long, like six years of it, and it just kept rehashing itself. Uh, genres usually come around for about two, two, three years. You know, I'm thinking of things like Speed Garage, which was kind of a flash in the pan in 1997. Uh, you know, big bass lines, dubstep bass lines. Dubstep was only kind of around and popular for around two years, and then it moves on to something else. And it always rotates itself after 15 years. It comes back. It seems to come back. But electro just went on forever. Yeah. And I, I, I was just by the top. By the time it got to 2011, I was just totally sick of the genre because I, I genre hop, you know, like like nothing else. Because I love all music. It doesn't matter whether it's house, electro, trance, techno, it chill out, chill out. I mean, 
I love a bit of all of it. Yeah. That's generally how it is, though, because you you listen to something for so long, you just get sick of it, then you pile it away, and then like years later, you listen to it, and you're like, oh, I forgot how good that actually is because you haven't heard it in years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Exactly. I, I think my favourite annuals were probably the 2003 and four annuals because by then I'd kind of found my feet about how to do these mixes well and, and you know, um, get the most out of them because we were, they were quite limiting in a way because back up, back in the day, you could only put 78 minutes on a CD, 78, 30 seconds, I think it was. And you had to fit on as many tracks as possible. The label really wanted you to put 20, 21 tracks on. So, you know, that was a struggle because we were using 12 inch versions in the early days, 2000, 2000 and 2001 we were actually mixing all off vinyl and and not using radio edits or anything and then going in and then and then i'd have to go in and edit it the editing process was a manual kind of razor cut thing on sony soundforge which wow. would take two three days just for the edit you'd have to bring it down from about 110 minutes down to 78 minutes so that was a massive task but i, I kind of got good at doing the editing uh, and, and quick at it and then the program sped up as well um and we started to edit things in like the radio and use the beats from the 12 inch version and then edit in the radio mix and then use the beats out from the 12 inch version and that would cut down the, the time considerably and then of course we started to use ableton around 2006 well i was a bit late to the party i kept using vinyl and cd cds to mix until 2006 other djs did it earlier um, but I kind of relented against it because I really, I like the authenticity of using, you know, uh, physical formats. Mm. So to mix it all in Ableton was um, was a learning curve. And, um, you know, that mix mixtape was the first one that I did in Ableton. But you know what, you can hear how, you can hear the difference in the mixing. It doesn't feel so organic, but it's so much cleaner. Uh, and it's, mm. it, it's, it's too, almost too perfect. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because everything's laid laid so well on top of each other and you can move things around and chop that 32 beats out there and put it there and, um, <laughs> you know, it's a different process. But, um, yeah, I do I do prefer just doing a live mix. That's why I put so many of my live mixes on my Mixcloud page because that's, that's really the real DJ there. That's not, you know, um, sitting in front of a computer screen for five days, getting a mix perfect in Ableton, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely. I don't know how much that means to people these days because, you know, priorities have changed. A lot of people just don't care about that stuff, you know, but then others do, so. Yep. No, it's, uh, we've always said, you know, there's nothing better than touch and feel, really. So, um, you know, that's just, but you've got to move with the times, I guess. Um, now, that's right. You've got to keep your fingers in all pies and learn the new technology as it comes forward as well. Otherwise, you'll just be left behind. Exactly. That's right. Now, I want to throw out a few little things that I've found here, a few a few um, stats, let's say. So now, as of August 2017, I read a stat that you had sold more CDs than any other Australian DJ, 35 of them in total. Uh, Ministry of Sound Annual 2006 was the highest selling compilation uh, and Sessions 2 was number one on both compilations and the dance charts. I think it was actually fourth in overall albums. Right. Now, with doing all of that, I mean, you, you've done so much with regards to compilation CDs and, and regards to that. You've worked with so many DJs. Out of all of the artists that you've 
worked with that, that have helped you along with these compilations and worked side by side with you. Has there been at any point a talent that you have kind of looked at and thought, this person's going to blow up in a few years or this artist is just is, is going to go places with regards to their DJ and with regards to their production or anything like that? Uh, not necessarily from the Ministry of Sound label because um, the, the DJs that I was working with on Ministry of Sound doing the compilations anyway, um, they were already well established. That's why they got that job mixing those CDs. Mm -hmm. uh, we never really got anyone that wasn't really at the top of their game or top of their state at least, you know. Um, DJs from Adelaide, Brendan and, um, you know, from Sean and John from... from um, from Melbourne, um, you know, so I think, I don't necessarily think there, but there, I've definitely, um, one of the things that I, I aspire to do all the time is to hunt out a new talent. And, you know, I think my philosophy on, on uh, teamwork uh, is really just to bring people into the fold, surround yourself in, in uh, good people with the right ethic and the talent to boot and just everyone nurtures each other, you know, and, and just tries to help each other out. You see it a lot with social media now with with DJs liking each other's posts every time they post and, oh, you've got a number two on track source, brilliant, like that, and resharing it. And that's kind of, that's a more uh, blatant way of saying what we were doing back in sort of from 2000 to 2010, where it was a little bit more, you know, you didn't wear your heart on your sleeve on social media so much. You were just doing the marketing, you know. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's definitely been a load of people that I've worked with in terms of creative uh, in the studio um, that uh, I have really high regard for, you know, JTEC, Nick Galea, uh, Mortlock, um, all, all these people I've put on my label, long distance recordings, just because mm -hmm. I was so enthralled by the music they were making. And they were from different, slightly differing styles as well. They always had a bit of a progressive flavor because that was the uh, flavor of the label. But then, you know, Namito in, in Germany, uh, he is a, a great friend of mine and um we did uh, a whole lot of music while we were while i was there in berlin in 2008 and you know we we even though we haven't seen each other for years we still support each other as much as possible on social media where we can play each other's records and i think that i mean that is half of what djing is it's not just about mixing records and in fact lesser now about mixing records than it's ever been because we've got bloody sync buttons you know yeah. i don't use them but so many people do so the quality of you know djing uh, it's it's not really, uh, it, it's kind of, I don't know how to say this. It's got, you know, people don't think as highly of DJs anymore because they know that it can be automated, you know, yeah. and that's a real shame yeah. for the DJs that are out there actually putting the effort in. I don't want to get onto an old man rant because that would take me <laughs> But you know, you know what I'm saying. So yeah. the other half of DJ is really, is, is it's all about how you come across, how you relate to your fans, you, the image, um, uh, the time you spend with your audience and how, how you interact with them, you know. Uh, and that's something that is a learned process and you have to build up over time and you can hone it over time. Um, but that's kind of the stuff that I've, 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 I've done for a long time and I've, I've helped uh, younger artists out with and also signing them to my label and, and doing whatever I can just to get them involved in the family, you know. And that's yep. what it's all about. It's, it's all about family, even in the music industry. Definitely. <laughs>
Yeah, well, I, so with, with sync, I mean, you brought up the whole sync thing. We're going to go a little off topic here. But I've seen the only time that I can think of sync being uh, a, a tool to be used is for the likes of Kissy Sellout um, uh, and James Abelia, who are using sync as a tool to be able to play over multiple CDJs or to incorporate other elements um, like using a controller or uh, like an APC or something like that as well. That's when I think the idea of having sync comes on board where you can be playing over two, three or four decks and be able to not have to constantly try and move the faders. But if you're doing like you're just a club DJ doing, all right, I'm going to play on this one CD and I'm going to use to the next one and I'm going to use sync to do that so I can make sure that's perfect. That's when I think it kind of, that's, I think that's the other side of the argument where that's, that's lazy. But if you're using it to improve your overall stage performance, yeah. I think that's when sync is a tool that uh, adds on to that and add, can enable you to do so much more with your routine. There's not much more I can add to that, Adam. I mean, you've hit the nail on the head there. Um, you know, with DJs like James Abelia, they're adding layers uh, and they're mm. dropping things at particular times um, over the top of three layers that are already playing. So if sync can be used as a tool to make that cleaner, then I don't have a problem with that at all. But as you say, you know, uh, if it's just a DJ mixing two records together and people are expecting him to be getting that in time manually and he's literally all he's doing is pressing play on, on beat number one and then it's in time. I mean, I, I don't think I don't think that much of that. And the problem is it's not I mean, everyone's free to do what they want. You know, they you know, if they want to become a DJ and DJ that way and they do a good job. Fantastic. The problem is it lowers the expectation uh, in the general population of what a DJ does because uh, they just think it's really simplified now. It's not really a. It's not really a job, it's just kind of mm. a hobby. It kind of, it dilutes everything, you know, which is a real shame to see. Um, no one wants that, but that's technology, that's progress for you. So, um, you know, I guess the way to combat that is to do exactly what you said. Use, if you have to use sync, use it as a tool, uh, as a MIDI uh, timing connector, as, you know, simply, uh, or, um, or, um, you know, remain a bedroom banger just on sync. <laughs> yes. <coughs> so, yes, yes, definitely, definitely. Now, in 2006, uh, you released your first single, Identify Me, um, which, as you were mentioning before, I think that was part of the mixtape CD that you did. Um, yeah, it came out on vinyl first, um, yeah. and then there was a CD single of it, but it was only sent out to DJs. Um, so we, we put it on the album as well. Yeah. Now, were you already producing sort of behind the scenes before that yeah. came out? Um, or was was producing kind of on your radar early on with your DJing? Or did that sort of come about a bit after sort of playing around? Producing was the first thing that was on my radar before DJing, really. Right. I was already uh, a piano player in my when I was young, eight nine years old. Um, I had a keyboard at home, and um, you know, around sort of nineteen eighty eight, when we came out to Australia, I started taking the school computer uh, computer and synthesizer home on the weekends and programming it. So they had a Korg M one and an Atari ST, and I was sort of programming dance beats there. Um, that early on, before I even discovered really what DJing was, so. Um, yeah, that kind of got, things just got so busy so fast. 
um, it kind of snowballed. When things happen, they can happen and, and just run really quickly. And suddenly I found myself, you know, I'm not pulling my own chain, but I was working all weekend, you know, and and Thursday nights as well doing bar gigs. And, and Monday nights you were recovering from the weekend. And mm. there just wasn't time. I was traveling all over the country doing doing gigs and uh, it was some, sometimes like eight gigs a weekend. You'd, you'd play in Perth one night, you know, Queensland the next night and then back to uh, Sydney on the Sunday and do do Greenwood and then Icebox. Um, and it was it was total madness. I mean, it was, it was a total whirlwind. It was a lot of fun. And, you know, it was great for all of us that were involved in it at that time. We had, we had loads of fun and everyone enjoyed it. But uh, it was, you know, there wasn't much time really to sit at home. And that's the excuse I'm using anyway to put it aside. So I didn't really um, I didn't really get into uh, being serious about creating tracks until about 2003. Mm -hmm. And then I met um, a guy called JTEC. He was a young aspiring producer in Canberra. And he's, he sort of said, you know, we should get together and do something. So we did. And then I got offered a remix by um, Savage Garden's Darren Hayes. And that was our first little Ooh. project. Go. So we did a remix for one of his singles called Darkness. Uh, and that appeared on the on the single. And then from there, we started writing our own stuff. So we had you know a good year of just messing around with tracks before we actually released Identify Me. But Identify Me was the first proper single. And then the next one after that was Destructor, which was actually uh, a higher charting single than Identify Me, but Identify Me is the one that people remember the most. Mm. Um, uh, and then we started doing some more sort of experimental stuff. We worked together on a single called Moment of Confusion Between Man and Dog. Uh, that was just a weird, minimal, sort of trippy thing that ended up on my album. Uh, and then JTEC went and did his own thing and I kind of started doing my own thing as well. Um, he moved over to Germany first and Canada. So we actually lost contact for a while, but um, by then I was uh, I was already in Berlin and um, um, doing my own thing with Namito um, and starting up my own label, Long Distance Recordings. So that's really how that label came about. You know, I was in Berlin surrounded by all this great music and I wanted to do that music basically, rather than doing, uh, continuing to do uh, the top 40 area chart stuff on on the ministry annual. So mm -hmm. I sort of changed direction a little bit. Uh, and uh, you know, that, that label went for about four years. And as we talked about before, you know, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of young guys that I really uh, thought did some amazing work on that on that label, and they came out, uh, over, uh, you know, over the space of those years, and uh, on on an album and and on singles. We even did vinyl for some of the releases as well. So that was pretty exciting. And that label's been resurrected now for my last album and this new album that's coming out, which uh, came, you know, last one came out last year. This one's coming out probably in November, um, and that's called Archival Remixed. Um, and again, it's it's getting amazing Australian talent to remix my last last year's album, you know, and take it in the direction that they would take it if they were creating the song themselves. So um, there's some really wild interpretations of my songs, and uh, I love hearing remixes of my own tracks because I've come up with the original idea, I've gone with a, a direction that I think works for what I want to do, and then they've taken that idea and taken it in a completely different direction on a whole new tangent. Uh, and that's really exciting to hear remixes back. That's one of the, the great things about, about um, you know, creating music. So the album is coming out soon, and uh, 
some of the names of the remixes on there. I mean, Matt Rowan, Robbie Lowe, Zan Muller, Jimmy J from Perth, uh, both of them from Canberra with Kazuki. Um, John George from Rufus de Soul's done a remix oh, on there. Oh, wow. Oliver A from France, Murat Killick, Sydney, uh, Data Entry, who is Rubber People, uh, his alter ego when he does more techno stuff. Um, he's doing great things at the moment. He's done a remix of Destructor. And then, you know, other great guys, uh, Dave Winnell, Steve May. Um, uh, it's really exciting to be able to pull all these great remixes together into some sort of coherent form that flows because there's so many different genres involved. Um, so that album, yeah, again, coming out early November, it's already been pushed back a bit because of COVID-19. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been a, a tough old year for everyone and uh, trying to get things moving this year has been particularly difficult. But, um, you know, the fruits are on the on the, on the the album and um, hopefully we'll see that in November and everyone can grab a copy. Oh, I can't wait for that. It's going to be awesome. Excellent. Definitely, mate, definitely. Well, I think uh, the last question that I really had for you um, was basically around the events you have been running. Um, oh, yeah. Yep. Electronic and Jack the House. Um, you know, you, you've DJed at obviously some huge events. You've DJed at some festivals, clubs. Um, but a standout moment uh, from your time as DJing, you know, you're, you're obviously running these two amazing events, which I'd like you to try and uh, give us a little bit of background on. But, yeah. but as a whole, you know, in, in your whole career, what would be your standout moment? Uh, look, two two moments in time stand out uh, ahead of others. Uh, the first one would be Big Day Out 2003. Um, I was warm up for Kraftwerk and following Kraftwerk was Underworld Live. So, um, I mean, just the, you know, the pressure, <laughs> the pressure of that gig was phenomenal. I, I have seen the video of it. It's actually up on YouTube, the video of me playing. and. I'm well into it, but I can also see from the look on my face, I'm scared shitless. I mean, there's 10,000 people out there in front of you. Um, this is sort of just as I was starting to peak, you know, um, and uh, in terms of uh, being accepted by the audience and um, they were going with whatever I did. And I went up there and I went quite on a tangent. I, I was playing very techno-y, which was quite different to what I was playing in the clubs at the time. So um, playing, you know, techno off vinyl, it's pumping 140 bpm the intensity was huge and the feedback from the crowd i mean you watch the video on youtube um it's 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 amazing you know and i, I wish now looking back on it i could have lived in the moment a little bit more and and sucked up that energy and mm. so i could remember it i just remember it as a bit of a blur you know and because it was kind of it was on stage and off stage within 50 minutes and uh you know it's it was a, a massive step forward and it's a huge a huge show for me going from sort of clubs or, or raves you know the most i'd played would be about three four thousand people at that stage which is still a lot but you know jumping up to ten thousand people where you literally look out um you know over the heads of the crowd and as far back as you can see you can see heads and and it's a dark big room the boiler room and uh yeah uh i mean everyone gets nerves but i remember that day was particularly particularly full on <laughs> but you know at the end of the day you've got to believe in yourself and, and you you know you do the best of your ability and I, and I pulled it off and I was happy with how we went um, another time I remember uh, was uh, Love Parade I think it was 2008 um, you know we all aspired to go to the Love Parade back in the early noughties uh, that's where 
the music that well, a lot of us were into, you know, techno, trance, um, German-influenced music, and um, yeah. you know, all the big big acts were there: Sven Vath, Paul Van Dyke, BT, you know, of that period. And to be uh, to be asked to play on one of the floats uh, on the street there, uh, and you know, million a million people everywhere you know in berlin at that time um that was really exciting and i remember djing and looking down and there were a couple of people i mean there were a lot of australians there but there were a couple of people there holding an aussie flag and waving it at me going go mark and i mean that they're the kind of moments that stick in your head they were definitely the two that i remember but i also on that trip i played at a festival in sweden um in called the holtsford festival and i was on the bill with um sharon j sharon was on before me and it was a massive, massive task to get there. Uh, I, I flew direct from Sydney to London, only stopping in Asia for two hours. And the flight getting into London was late uh, by like four hours. So I missed the connecting flight to, to Sweden. Oh. And the next one was not for another six hours. So it was really cutting it fine, like literally to the hour. Um, when I got there, they picked me up from the airport. I'd been now flying for and waiting in airports for 36 hours without. <sighs> and I, I got into the back of the car, fell asleep, and then I thought it was just in Stockholm, but it wasn't. It was in Hutsfred, which, which is four hours into the woods. Um, <laughs> I'm like, no more traveling. I can't do this. I literally was like at the end of my tether. Uh, but got there, and of course, once you saw, you know, 2000. Raving Swedes um, and huge sound systems and everything. It was just like, okay, I'm on again. I'm on again. Let's do this. And that was pretty exciting as well. So that was around 2008. So they're the biggest moments, I think, in terms of size and crowd. But it doesn't matter whether you're playing to a big crowd or a small audience and say Chinese Laundry in the back room there, you know. Um, if it's a good sound system and you've got a great crowd there and they're really responsive. I have some of the, my best uh, memories of DJing. Um, would be uh, things like Chinese Laundry, you know, where you've got 100 people right in front of you just feeding off the energy of the music. It's a fresh sound that you're playing. They're really into it. They haven't heard these tracks before, yet they're, they're into every single track. I mean, you know, that they're, 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 that's the reason why you DJ, you know, yeah. to go out there and play new music to people and expose them to something they haven't heard before. Not the latest Top 40, you know, <laughs> not the latest track from David Guetta, you know, but go out there and go, okay, check this out that I found. I mean, that that is what DJing is all about for me. That's what I love about it. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Mate, um, Jack the House, I just want to touch on that because I know yeah. that was a, a sweet event. Um, how did that come about? You know, where did that sort of start from? Yeah, Jack the House, um, I mean, as I told you before, um, I started DJing on radio around 89, 90, and the music around those days was Acid House and Hip House. So um, I hadn't really heard the music in the club since those days, and I just thought, why is this music not being played in Sydney clubs anymore, you know? Um, so that came about because I was at a club with Paul Holden, a DJ Paul Holden, who unfortunately is no longer with us. Mm -hmm. And he played a couple of records in that genre in his set, just as sort of throwbacks. And I said, Paul, how about we do a show that plays all of this music, you know, unashamedly, because some of it is, you know, bordering on cheesy, like Technotronic and things like that. But, you know, go deeper into the genre and play those tracks that used to get played in the clubs back in the back in the day. So we just we just threw it on at the Sly Fox as a tester. 
Yeah. And he got 300 people to it on a Friday night, which, you know, in the days of lockouts, that was kind of unheard of to get for a small event like that, to get that many people out on a small club on a Friday night. So um, the, the, the events continued. Um, I did, Paul unfortunately left us after the second event. Um, and uh, rest in peace, Paul. Uh, but it continued through to uh, number 12. And I actually have the 13th one, the graphics for that ready to go. Um, but, you know, we're still in lockdown in some respects. You know, <laughs> we, can only ha- we can only have 50 people in the club yeah. st- sitting down, eating. I mean, it's, it's madness. It doesn't matter whether people are standing up or sitting down. Um, you know, I don't want to get onto a lockout and lockdown tr- tangent, but, you know, some of these rules just don't make any sense. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, I'm, I've been living in lockdown now in Melbourne for seven months and it's done my head in completely. So, <laughs> um, you know, in Sydney, it's a different story. Clubs are allowed to open, but they just won't open because it's not worth them opening for 50 people. Um, I'm talking a couple of months ago now. I know that's mm. changed in the last few weeks to 100 people or a little bit more. Um, but I think people still need to be seated. And I'm just not sure how you can run a nightclub, especially that kind of music where it's all about the community dance. You know, it's all about people getting up and sharing their time and enjoying themselves on the dance floor um, to these great tracks from 1990, you know? Yeah. Um, and yeah. You can't, I don't know how you can do that with uh, seated. It just doesn't work. No. So I'm, I'm just contemplating what to do there the other one that i do is electronic which goes back even further into my childhood and plays all the records that i used to buy when i was you know 10 years old and you know uh all that stuff depeche mode synth pop new wave um and that's just that's a fun night you know we're not trying to break new ground with that we're just trying to have a great night out yeah. um and yeah. and people really enjoy it because they haven't heard these music this some some people haven't heard this music in a club and it's amazing when you play the 12 inch version of say um, you know, Bizarre Love Triangle by New Order, how massive it sounds on the speakers still, how amazing that record is, you know, um, yeah. and how big yeah. the bass drum is in it and the bass line, and it cuts through in a way that, you know, house music doesn't necessarily do because it's much more layered, where these records are really stripped back. So um, that's really exciting. And the offshoot of uh, Electronic is the Electronic Radio Show, which I do um, on KISS FM down here in Melbourne. Yep. Um, and yep. for people outside of Melbourne, you can always go to kissfm.com.au and listen to it that way uh, or on my Mixcloud page. Um, so that's another offshoot of it. So, you know, I love having my fingers in all sorts of different pies, whether it's, you know, creating stuff on a techno or, or progressive tangent or whether I'm playing 80s music, you know, it doesn't matter to me. It's, 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 all, it's all good stuff and it's all exciting and um, I wouldn't do it if I didn't love it, you know. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to find out about that Jack the House because I used to manage uh, the Duke Hotel on Enmore Road, which is like 100 metres down the road from Sly Fox. Oh, yeah. 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 So I used to get, like, everybody come and pass. They'd come into my pub first, have a few beers, and then they'd all head up to Sly Fox. And if I finished early enough, I'd be able to go up and sneak in the door and I'd be able to yeah. uh, enjoy some of that. So that was why I was, Did I really wanted to come in for one of the Jack the House parties? Yeah, yeah, man, yeah, yeah, oh. of course, of course. Okay, yeah, definitely, definitely a different vibe, yeah, to a house event, you know. So different, different. yeah, it was yeah. so different. So no, it was very cool, very cool. Um, Good to hear. Mate, that, that is all the questions we have. I, I mean, look, to be brutally honest, I could sit here and talk to you for hours personally. I'm sure Adam could as well. Oh yeah, oh you know, yeah. 
uh, everything you have done is from our genre and, and basically what's led us, I think, towards our DJing careers um, as well. So, I mean, yeah, I, I could talk for hours to you um, and especially about Sydney scene and, and all the all the dance parties and stuff like that. But... Oh, man, Sp- speaking of the Sydney scene, when I was going through your profile, seeing there was a photo, I think it was Paul Holden's, uh, I think it must have been his wake or his funeral, and there's a photo of you with Nick Fish, Amber Savage, Tommy... Uh, Rod Richards, because obviously he was Aladdin. Um, you've got posters for Utopia, Sublime, which is a, uh, I think if oh, you were subbies. back in the, back in the day, Subbies on a Friday night was the pinnacle. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like it seems exactly right. We could both talk to you for hours just about the Sydney scene and everything else as well. So we, uh, we thank you. Yeah, we were we were reminiscing uh, before we got into this interview about uh, everything that we like shows we've watched you at and CDs and all sorts of stuff. So uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, man. And um, we do really appreciate you giving us the time to interview you for our fans and, and getting to know a bit about your DJing career, your producing career, ministry sound stuff. Uh, it's been absolutely amazing. Uh, so thank you very much for that. No, thank you, Tim. Thank you, Adam, as well. It's been great talking to you both. It's awesome. All right. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to roll into your mix uh, that you've done for us. Uh, I'm definitely going to be making sure that we, Adam and I, share that uh, album once you drop that in November. Um, definitely, awesome. Definitely keen to see that. So we'll put all social links, everything, um, Mark Dynamics up. Guys, get on, follow Mark. Make sure you're picking up his album when it drops. Um, and again, thank you very much. And let's enjoy the mix that you put together for us. Yeah, no, enjoy the mix. Look, I've pulled some of the latest tracks off the album in there and then a whole load of other stuff from overseas as well. Um, so it's got a, a nice flow, this one. I hope you enjoy it. Amazing. Check this out, guys. Thank you. Hey everyone, it's Mark Dynamics here and you're listening to Bayswater Radio with Adam and Tim. Tim. 